Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today we have Josh Sweeney. Josh won and scored the winning goal, the only goal in the 2014 gold medal game against Russia. He is he has a purple heart. He was also on the Paralympic team in 2022 in Nordic skiing. So he went from sled hockey to Nordic skiing. He was an internationally ranked triathlete, winner of a World Cup, U.S. Nationals, the winner of the first Pat Tillman Award at the ESPYs. And, you know, he's a guy who's got an interesting story. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. This is, I mean, I have to ask the question right off the beginning. So you go from the glory of beating the Russians, of picking the Russians' pocket, right? And then going in and scoring the goal to going to Nordic skiing. How does how does that end up working out? Because Nordic skiing is a whole lot of work. And sometimes there aren't as many people watching as there are watching a hockey game. You guys were noon on a Saturday on NBC for that gold medal game. Yeah, which I didn't realize. I probably would have been a lot more nervous if I would have known that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey. And it was, yeah, it's a little challenging going from something that I felt like I was doing really well at and um, having a lot of success, obviously, and then going to Nordic skiing where I'm hoping I'm middle of the pack of Paralympic games or hoping that at least I'm not at the bottom of the, the list at the end. Uh, but um, I think that was kind of, it was just a, you know, lifestyle change that I needed to adjust. I still wanted to be able to do something to be able to represent my country. Hockey wasn't going to be what I could continue to do. And instead of just calling it and retiring um, completely, I figured I'd pick up a new sport that had a lot of, translation from hockey due to the stroke and the way that we move on the ice it translates very well to the snow uh, and it turned out to be a lot of fun I'm still able to to work hard and, and represent my country and and do it on the international stage so while I'm not somebody that you know they're saying hey you should watch <laughs> it's definitely still still a good feeling when I'm out there competing is part of it the the shooting part too because it's cross country skiing and it's biathlon right so you've got to cross country ski and then get your heart rate down to be able to shoot effectively so you don't have to that you don't have to go and do penalty laps but you were a sniper right yeah so you can shoot <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I'm supposed to be able to I didn't have such <laughs> good luck in Canmore a couple weeks ago but. Um, that was definitely very appealing, being able to do biathlon, being able to shoot in a high stress situation again. It was something that I, I really enjoy. I had a lot of fun um, doing the last biathlon races that I've done and, and, and competing at that level internationally is, is great. Um, I'm definitely out of practice. It's still something I'm working on. And, and I, you know, never had to shoot with a ski attached to me before uh starting doing biathlon so it was it was interesting but yeah the shooting fundamentals all of that came right back to me so that was 
that was awesome to now just be able to to kind of learn how to ski fast so that my shooting will pay off because I uh, I realized after one of the first biathlons I did that just because you could shoot doesn't mean you're going to win if you can't ski fast. Skiing fast is still is still the primary objective. Yes. How much of the mental part is similar to to being a sniper? I mean, I really only know about the sniper sort of uh, uh, ritual, effectively, of of preparing yourself and you know getting a hard surface or whatever, and you know making sure that that there's no slop in what you're in 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 your shooting. I only know it from, you know, from reading like spy novels effectively. <laughs> is there is there a mental carryover from definitely what you were doing there to because you've got to lower your heart rate, you've got to, you know, I mean there's got to be anxiety too, right? Your shot is supposed to be important and if it's not, there's a lot riding on it. Yeah, of course. Um it it is. There is a lot of kind of mental preparedness. It's also consistency having your your plan of, you know, when you lay down, what are you doing? Like, how are you getting the rifle onto you? The repetition of doing it so many times that it just feels natural. Um, it's, it's definitely a lot of mental preparation, a lot of physical preparation. And then on top of that, you have to right? like you have to try to control your heart rate when you're coming in and remember that, you still have things to do <laughs> before you get to your rifle, take your sunglasses off. So you're not, you know, hitting your, hitting your sights with your sunglasses. And um, so it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of, of thinking that you and, and preparation, but I feel like that's what I love the most about it because when I'm racing, nothing else, like there is nothing else in on my mind. And I love that just like playing hockey when I was out on the ice and I was in position getting ready for the puck to drop my brain was just blank like I was in full autopilot mode and and I love that part of sports and so it's something that really comes down to just so many hours of practice that when you get to a race it's just muscle memory it's interesting to talk about the hockey going back to scoring the winning goal against Russia you're you're in on a breakaway yeah you have <laughs> A specific move like I've I've talked to Mike Ruzioni and he was you know scored that that huge goal in 1980 against the Russians and he said his teammates were like shoot 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 like just shoot like hurry up you have the opening like take advantage of it but you you went all the way in and then and then roofed it on the uh on the goalie do you have your go-to move? Was was it instinct? Were you going, okay, this is what I have to do. I'm watching to see when he moves. How did it work? Honestly, it was purely muscle memory and just the, you know, the amount of hours that I spent on the ice with Rico Roman and Jen Lee and doing drills and coming in and shooting on Jen and reading and reacting. And I mean, even the shot that I did choose for that goal was probably not the one I should have chose because there was such a small room for me to be able to fit that puck. And the fact that it was, you know, like it was, it was, I was very fortunate 
that that went in. I mean, watching it again and even, you know, Taylor Lipset like talking to me afterwards being like, dude, you had the whole backside of the net, like wide open. I don't know why you chose to go to that way. <laughs> so it's, there's, um, there's a lot of other things I probably should have done, but it was really just reading and reacting and, and that muscle memory of going in and shooting on the net. And that was clearly something I had done in the past that had worked before. And I just ran with it. Did you think when it happened that that could be the winning goal? Because the Russians had beaten you in the prelims, right? Two to one. Yeah, and I was out there on the ice when they scored in the preliminary round, and that was pretty tough because it was uh, I was on a penalty kill. So there was four of us, five of them. I think it might have even gotten down to three of us and five of them. I don't remember exactly. And um, I remember I've prided myself on my penalty killing ability. So being able to, to do that and knowing that the coach um, trusted me enough to put me out there was something that I was very excited about. And then when they scored, I was just like, Oh no. Uh, so being able to come back after that game to score the winning goal. And I mean, I was telling Declan farmer in the locker room cause I was not, expecting myself to be the one to score i was i was in the locker room saying hey man you got to get a goal this this period like we need something can you can you work your magic because you know deck farmer's amazing <laughs> can you score a goal and he you know just like yeah i'm trying you know and i'm like all right cool and uh and then i go out there and score and it was it, yeah i and then after that i mean i was i didn't know what was going to happen but i knew that we had to play solid defense because otherwise it was that goal wasn't going to mean anything. And I really wanted that to at least help us get to overtime, if nothing else. Well, also in the prelims, you had, had outshot them by what, 11 to four or something like that. But I think it was in the first period, but I think it was their first shot on goal that actually went in. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're up one, nothing. And back in the prelims, they got one shot on goal and the goal went in and the shot went in and go, okay, we could be in big trouble. I mean, it has to be a tense moment as, as a penalty killer. What are you thinking? Like what's, what goes through your mind when there are five of them and there are three of you and you've got to do your best to help your goalie out. Yeah. I mean, really, you're just watching your area. Right. And that's one thing with hockey is that you have to only do your job. If you try to do someone else's job, that's where mistakes start to happen because then there's two of us doing one job and that means someone's not doing their job. So with penalty killing, you have to assume the responsibility of at least two people's job and you don't know who is the one doing that. Like, right, like which, which player at which time is the one having to do the other person's job, but not getting in the way of the other penalty killer. Like that's where it turns into um, a very confusing game. But I feel like I was like, it would be me and Paul Schaus or uh, I think maybe Rico would be out there. They'd put uh, one of the other defensemen out there and we had worked together enough to where it was like, all right. And I communicated a ton. Like when I was on the ice, I was probably too loud just trying to make sure everybody knew what was going on, where the puck was, where, you know, where we needed support or whatever. And so um, it just kind of turns into zones where you want, you want to guard the front of the net because that's where most of your goals are going to be scored. And then from there you want to battle for the puck, but you don't want to get too committed to chasing the puck because then that's when somebody else can come around and is wide open for a pass. Um, so it's just a, yeah, it's, 
but that's what I loved about it is just the the pressure, the intensity that comes with those two minutes of absolute chaos. <laughs> Did you have an advantage having been a high school hockey player when you got into playing in sled hockey? For sure. Uh, when I went to tryouts that first, I mean, I was playing in San Antonio for maybe six months working with Lonnie Hanna, who had been on the team, the national team, many years before, won a gold medal. And um, I didn't even realize there was a national team. Like, I didn't even know there was a national sled hockey team. I had just been injured maybe a year and a half before that. I was playing uh, hockey just to be able to feel like I was still an athlete. I was still capable of being someone other than just a, you know, someone in a wheelchair. Um, and he could see the hockey sense that I knew where the puck was going before it got there. So uh, Lonnie, and so Lonnie told me like, Hey, there's a national team. And I think you need to go to tryouts. And Rico had already been on the team for a year. So I was kind of talking with him about, well, what's it like, you know, what, what do you guys do this and that? And he was like, yeah, you should go try out. So I go to tryouts and, um, ironically I scored a goal, but it was really only because the guy behind me that was playing defense reached around me, whacked my stick at the last minute. So that floated the puck up into the net, <laughs> which, which resulted in a goal. So it looked like I had scored. Uh, and so I got very lucky there and I had all the hockey sense. So I looked like I was, I think I looked like I was much faster than I actually was because I knew where the puck was going. So I didn't have to work as hard to get there. Um, and, and the coaches could see that. And so when I, when it came to interviews after, cause that was, um, at that time, I don't think there was as many players. So we would do interviews after two or three games and they would tell you whether or not you made the team. And they basically said, look, you have a lot of work to do physically and understanding your playing ability in the sled, but we can tell that you have hockey sense and you know where to be and you know where the puck's going. And that is one of the hardest things to teach. So we're going to take a chance on you and bring you onto the team. And I was like, sweet. <laughs> so then I got to work with Rico and Jen in San Antonio and, and Chris Leverkun and some of the other guys and, um, and really just got to work because it wasn't, it was, you know, three years later, I was at the 2014 games. That is amazing. So six months after your accident, you ended up it's like a year after my, after I was injured, but it was like six months after I started playing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I got very lucky. It got very lucky. And can, can we actually, because I mean, you mentioned that you're, you're missing both of your legs from an IED, but I, I was reading something or maybe it was actually, maybe I was watching a video and you said, so this is what it feels like to get blown up. <laughs> what goes through your mind when that happens? Because are you still, are you still in work mode of like, okay, this is this is a contingency that I can plan for. It might happen. And this is what I have to do afterwards. Like, like what goes through your mind other than this is what it feels like to get blown up? No, it's so funny. And I yeah, it was probably a video because I, I I said that multiple times in the past, because it was, it was the first thing that hit my mind after I was injured, because it was when you're in the military before you're going over to Afghanistan or Iraq. There's so many improvised explosive devices, IEDs, bombs, 
that are in the ground that it's basically a known threat that as soon as you are on the ground just just know that there's ieds everywhere and so they talk so much about it you go through so much training they have sweepers that um you know go in front of you when you're on patrol to try to see where they are and they'll mark they'll mark them with like spray paint or something to to tell you where they are but it's talked about so much that it was just kind of one of those things where I don't know. It's like, if your mom continually tells you, right, like don't touch the pan, it's hot. It's going to be hot. Use a mitt, use, you know, do all these things. One day, you know, you touch the pan, you're like, ow, that was really hot. This is what it actually feels like. Right? Like that's the, that's the closest thing I can think of. Um, obviously on a much bigger scale of being injured, <laughs> but you know, it was, uh, it was, it was like one of those moments of, Oh, okay, like this is what it feels like. And I was pretty helpless. Like there was, there was pretty much nothing for me to do. I kind of, I said, I remember saying help because I, I didn't go fully unconscious. And I remember I felt the explosion go off. I felt my back hit the floor. And then I remember saying help. And they were like, there was dust everywhere. So I was, I couldn't see anything. And they're just like ripping off all of my like Kevlar, uh, the, vest uh clothes anything just to just to be able to access my body in case you know the corpsman the medical doctor or whatever that was with me in case uh, he's a corpsman he's not a doctor but he's kind of like a nurse he was he was pretty advanced so he did a really good job um and and then i basically just laid there while everybody else did what they needed to do to help get me out of there. Uh, there was a couple other individuals that got hurt that day. And uh, there was another individual, Cody Stanley, that was killed on the way. He was part of the reactionary force coming to save me. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it definitely a horrible situation. Um, but aside from Cody being killed, knowing that I was the most seriously injured, uh, it, I don't know, it was, it's kind of in a weird way, like makes me feel better about it because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like, Oh, I got lucky or have any of that kind of survivor's guilt or anything. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I really didn't develop too many issues from that injury. I think uh, based on the support system I had after the fact, but there wasn't much for me to do. I kind of just waited for them to get there. It took like two and a half, three hours, something like that. It was ridiculous because of so many IEDs on the ground. They were launching mortars, the other, the, whoever we were fighting. I don't know exactly who they were, Af Afghanistan or someone else, launching mortars so the helicopters couldn't come down, the, which had the pararescue in it because they wanted to load me up. Um, so it was just a kind of a crazy day. And then they finally got me onto that helicopter eventually. And I got, I got sent out to Germany where they patched me up some more and then sent me to um, Bethesda, Maryland, where kind of my rehabilitation journey started. You went into the Marines just out of high school, right? Yeah, straight out of high school. What did it mean to represent your your country? What what was what what grabbed you that said you need to do this? This is important for you. I don't I don't feel like I had an intense sense of patriotism at that time. I feel like I was a little bit of a just kind of a lost kid. What am I going to do? What do I you know? What, I don't want to go to college. I had already like growing up in Phoenix, Arizona at that time wasn't as big. And I was familiar with shooting and how to shoot and firearms. And um, 
so I, I felt comfortable around like weapons and whatnot. And I was in Boy Scouts. So I was already kind of groomed to understand how uniforms and earning merit badges and doing, you know, going camping. And so um, I feel like, I feel like just everything in my life that wasn't, it wasn't anything that was blatantly like you're going to join the military, but it was a lot of stuff that in the end made me feel like I would do a good job. I would, um, it would be something I would enjoy doing. And then being able to represent my country uh, is, is a bonus and something that I always, you know, I think the United States is great. And so I, I, uh, I definitely felt like it was something I should do, even if it was for a couple of years or four years or whatever it ended up being. When did the patriotism part kick in? Because you talk about coming back and getting to represent your country as a Paralympic athlete. So when did that kick in as, as a Marine? I do think when you leave boot camp, there is a sense, and, and it is how, you know, right? Like boot camp is designed, right? Like it's designed so that when you leave, you love America and you will, you know, you've already signed essentially your life away if that's what happens. And so there is that sense of, patriotism for the country um, based on what you what you've accomplished in boot camp and how that works uh, but I think really it hit me after I had a chance to see what it is that we do for other countries and kind of being able to travel um, on deployments to see how we're helping people and the things that we're doing to try to make the world a better place is what really helped me to understand why I love representing this, this country. What about the camaraderie? Does that happen in boot camp? Because this translates into being a hockey player too, right? That that sense of teamwork. But when does that, because I mean, as you said, you can be, you, you, you can sign your life away, right? I mean, that's it. But you're the only one protecting your buddy and your buddy's the only one protecting you in so many ways. Does that become real in boot camp? Does that become real when you get deployed? How does how does that work? That mentality. I think that starts in in boot camp for sure. But then I think after after you leave there and you get to your unit and you do realize how much you need each other and how much you rely on each other, and that everybody has a job to do and everybody needs one another to be able to to operate smoothly, do their job. Um, have someone to rely on or even just need to sit down and chat for a little bit. Um, so that, I think it's, that's when you start to realize, because it is, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because it's a work environment, right? Like I am in the military to do a job, but I also care a lot about everyone around me, but I also understand that I'm, I'm expendable in a way that I'm doing a job that, that could require me to put myself in harm's way to be able to save other people. Um, so it's, it's, I think, the maturity starts to happen after you leave boot camp and you realize like, wow, we really need each other and I have to take care of them and they need to take care of me. And, and then, yeah, hockey for sure. Like it's, it's a second family, especially that USA team, even more so since I left, those dudes are a unit, right? Like they show up and they just crush everyone because they work so well together. They rely on each other. They legitimately care about one another and, and go, um, you know, and, and talk and have parties and take care of each other. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's an amazing hockey military, um, you know, all those team sports, it's an amazing 
investment into I think yourself and and especially at that international level into your country because of of the things that you do for not only each other but the you know the United States on in foreign lands. You're talking about how good they are. Did was it hard in Beijing to watch them and see them almost never get scored on? I mean, you talk about dominating. They dominated. Yeah, I got to be honest. I really don't watch most of their games anymore because I just I'm like, who are they playing? Oh. Okay, I think I already know how that's going to go because <laughs> they're so good. Um but I do, I like, I definitely like watching them when they play Canada and the way that those two battle and how close those games have been. I mean, and I always think the preliminary games are a little tougher because you're, it's like the first game you really meet. And so you're still, you're, you know how you play because you've played each other before, but you also know that you've been training and it's maybe you're being a little more defensive, maybe you're being aggressive. And, and um, so I, I'd love when they, play Canada love watching those games and and hopefully everybody will keep getting better so that these competitions just keep I mean it's they're unreal as a triathlete as a gravel rider as a Nordic skier what are the challenges that really make those sports appealing or what's the process that you want to go through well, so with triathlon, it was it was a little different, right? Because triathlon, if you want to race internationally, it's a sprint try. It's not an endurance race. I mean, it is, but like it is, but not at the Ironman level, right? That's an endurance race. You're out there all day long. Sprint try is more about strength, I feel, over you know, the set distance that you're doing. And, and tell us what the differences are in terms of, in terms of distances and everything. Yeah. I honestly don't remember what, uh, I mean, Ironman is essentially, I mean, it's like a marathon of running. And then I don't even remember what the bike or this, it's like a mile and a half swim. And the bike is a lot. <laughs> it's essentially I mean, it's 2.1 for the swim, I think. And then 112 or something for the bike and then a marathon which is crazy. Right. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't gotten to that level yet, but the sprint distance triathlon that, that all the elite international para triathletes do is a 750 meter swim, uh, 10 K 20, 20 K bike and, and a five K run. It's either a 10 K or 20 K bike. I can't remember now. I'm not sure. And it probably, I think it's probably 20, probably the 20, um, but it's fairly, it's fairly short. I mean, it, it, there's guys now doing it in like an hour and five minutes. And so you're basically just hammer down hour and five minutes, right? Like as hard as you can go compared to uh, Ironman where you're spending all day making sure you're fueling correctly so that you can continue to keep a solid effort throughout the entire day. Um, and that is one of the reasons I think I really enjoy gravel hand cycling and Nordic skiing. I haven't gotten into as much of the Nordic skiing over the longer distances, but doing Rebecca's private Idaho over the summer gravel hand cycling. I mean, I spent, and I did it last year too. I just didn't meet the, um, mileage i think i only did like almost i think i only did like 80 miles and it took me eight and a half hours last year this year i was able to do the full 100 
hundred and whatever, however many miles it is. 105, I think, right? 105 in the, in the eight and a half hours. And I mean, I think about that and I'm like, that's a full work day of riding a hand cycle on gravel all day. Right. Like <laughs> it's nuts, but there's just something about it. The mental strength that it takes to, um, not stop, not give up. And it starts to, for me anyway, it starts to almost become like a therapy, right? Like all day I'm out there riding. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm all I'm thinking about is the next hill, the next climb, the next descent. Uh, what am I going to be eating? Do I have enough fuel? Like, what am I, you know, what am I drinking? And so it's, it's, it's just a really, to me, it feels like a nice escape almost, you know, like I, I'm not one of those types of people who likes to sit on a beach. I'd rather do a race. That's going to really push me to my limits and see, see where I'm at. And I think that's what I enjoy about it. And that's the appeal of Nordic skiing as well is that it's just going to stretch you to the very limit. <laughs> I feel like Nordic skiing is the most appealing part of it is that I feel like it's something I shouldn't be able to do as someone in a wheelchair, right? Like I feel like wheelchairs and snow don't get along like plain and simple. I mean, I've tried to get through snow in my wheelchair and it, it, it could be two inches thick and I'm stuck. Uh, but I can get on a sit ski with two Nordic skis and take off for two, three hours and, and get into places where it's totally quiet, almost desolate. You're kind of wondering like, if I broke a pole, is somebody gonna be able to help me out here? Uh, you know, and, and that's what I think I like the most about Nordic skiing is, is pushing myself, climbing very steep climbs, coming, coming down you know, the same way in those steep hills and, and really um, just getting into areas that I feel like it's almost the equivalent of hiking uh, would be or snowshoeing for me. And you talk about climbing steep hills and coming down those same hills. As a wheelchair racer, for me, the first time I got into and a cross-country ski, I went out and I'm going along and I climbed some hill and I thought, okay, like that's good. And then I went down and went, Oh, this is the scary part. Like, I mean, you, yeah. the description in some ways, I mean, obviously they're far more refined now, but if you imagine initially, it's almost like they decided they were going to take like a cafeteria chair and put it on two skis. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is kind of, it, it's not, you know, there are no shock absorbers. There's no, there are no turns. This is as static as it gets. And obviously yours is carbon fiber. It is far more aerodynamic, but but essentially, it is a really simple piece of machinery. And going downhill, because I remember I got it into the tracks going downhill. And I thought, okay, this is this is good, because then they'll direct me where I need to go. And the tracks are not straight. The tracks, it had like a little jog in it and a little jog in it. I thought, well, that's you know, I'm now suddenly going kind of fast and this thing's going to knock me over. It felt like I was in a cartoon. I felt like I was, I was some sort of runaway cart or something in a cartoon. So going uphill is difficult and then going downhill is difficult as well. Is it the training for you? Because you described your training as sort of going out into the woods. I mean, it's, it's, 
it sounds like what is appealing is getting rid of the sterile part of training. Is that, is that true for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would totally agree. I'm still, there's still going downhill. There's still some, like, I look at it and go, I don't really want to go down this. I'd rather just get out of my sit ski and just like hop down this as opposed to going, <laughs> going down in a sit ski and yeah, tracks too. Cause you could take those tracks. Like you said, if there's a little jog in those tracks, push you right out next thing, you know, uh, you know, you're on your side in the tree line. Um, but I definitely feel like the training that goes into sit skiing is a, is a lot of like skiered. And this is, this is if you don't have time to always be out on snow. Right. But it's, it's a lot of skiered and lifting. And if you don't know what a skier is, you know, it's like that like a c2 rowing machine flipped up so that you pull down on the handles and that's like the cross-country motion um and i did a workout yesterday super hard so hard i felt like crying like that's how hard this workout was and i have to do it again tomorrow which yeah obviously i'm clearly excited about um looking forward to it yeah <laughs> yeah uh but having the ability to get out and do those workouts and feel you know feel that it and like, like you said, like going up a hill, you're like, oh, that was hard, but it's, it's manageable. And then you turn around and you're like, oh, right. I have to get back down. Uh, but then there are some hills like up here, Bogus Basin here in Boise in the Nordic, Nordic trail. Um, it's you're climbing and your heart rate spikes instantly. And it's, it's a workout. There's, I feel like there's rarely a day that I ski and I feel like, oh, that was, that was easy or that was fun. You know, like. There's always, it's fun, but it's a, it's a very refined fun. If you're into, <laughs> I don't know the stuff that I'm into, but um, no, it's definitely, I love the escape. I love feeling like, like I'm out having fun and, and kind of like hockey too, right? Like I remember with hockey, the first, the first time I played, I got off the ice and my wrists, my hands, my fingers, my elbows, my shoulders, my core, literally everything hurt because of the amount of times that I fell, the amount of times, like, because it's such an impact sport. You're literally hitting sticks with spikes onto the ice to propel yourself. So all of those vibrations are just running up and down your arms. And, and so, and this is, like I said, this is a maybe a year after I was hurt. So I'm still dealing with hand and arm injuries and things. And, and that's where I feel like sports has been huge for me is therapeutically. Like I was playing without realizing it because I was having so much fun on the ice. I was working all of these muscles so that during, during the day, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do the things that I need to do or want to do. And it was, but it was fun. I didn't realize it just like when I'm skiing. I'm out there getting a great workout in. I get done and I'm like, oh, wow. I'm looking at my watch going, well, wow, that's a pretty good one. And I didn't even, didn't even realize it. And I think that's where sports is huge for disabled athletes or just, I mean, just people in general, really. To recognize that you're moving and you're saying that you can have a whole lot of fun at 150, 160, 170 beats per minute kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're flying, yeah. As long as you don't hit that downhill. Yeah, I mean, the, the heart rate might well go up when you go down that downhill. You might not be working as hard, but the fear goes through the roof sometimes going down that downhill. At least it does for me. So you talked about the gravel riding and you yeah. developed the vehicle, the, the hand cycle that you that you use for that gravel 
ride. Isn't that true? What's yeah. that all about? Like the problem solving aspect of developing some of these, some of these uh, alternative, uh, you know, machines really. Ideally, right. It would be nice to be able to just log in, buy the bike, sit at home, have it show up and go, yay, and go riding. But as a disabled athlete and if, you know, really it's just not, it's not possible. And then with the bicycle or hand cycle manufacturers, when COVID hit and they stopped making kneelers and other um, bikes because they just didn't have the whatever to be able to do it. Um, it's kind of where you have to start putting your problem solving hat on and figure it out. And as someone that's really, I love problem solving. I love finding ways to be able to do things. Um, and that's always kind of where my inventions, whatever you want to call them, come from, is they're born out of necessity, right? Like I, if I can buy something, I would much rather do that. But you can't buy a gravel kneeler that is made for a guy that is missing both legs and one is much shorter than the other, right? Like it's just not possible. And then on top of that, my torso, like there's all these different lengths. So what I did was I... Over the years, starting probably back in, I don't know, 2018, I started learning how to use um, a computer-aided drafting program where I would draw things up and look at dimensions. And um, then I made friends with a welder, an amazing aluminum welder that um, is also a fabricator and makes all kinds of things. And we basically got together and I said, all right, Here's kind of what I have designed for the side rails and whatnot, but we need to start plugging all this stuff together and make it work. And I also need my fork to be able to be, uh, you know, fit a disc brake and a 40 millimeter wide tire. And so we took, you know, I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time drawing this stuff up before we actually get in the shop and make it. Uh, but then essentially just buy a bunch of tubing, go over there and, 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 uh, make it and it's been it's been a lot of fun it's something that I think would be really neat to be able to I don't know develop so that others can also have the ability to ride a kneeling hand cycle or ride a, a for for I think gravel applications because one of the reasons I love gravel riding is that I'm out on private roads right like I'm not or, or not, you know not really private roads but more um, like gravel roads where there's less vehicles there's a lot less vehicle use being on a hand cycle, we're low, so it's hard to see us. I have a lot of friends that have been injured um, by cars, vehicles on hand cycles, riding around on normal roads. And I was like, man, I got my two kids. I got things I'm trying to do. Like, I'm not, I don't want to be out here getting run over. And, and then the fact that you could do endurance gravel riding and along the same lines of Nordic skiing, right? It's a lot of climbing. There's tons of climbing. You know, it's, you, I've, I don't remember what Rebecca's was, but it was a ton of climbing, seven, 7,000 feet or something ridiculous. And, um, and I was like, this is, this is a great workout. It's a lot of fun. I'm out in nature. I'm enjoying myself. And, uh, and I've, I don't feel like I'm just sitting at home or, you know, not, not doing anything. And so, so yeah, basically just whipped up that hand cycle and, um, thanks to, um, the components that they make now with the wireless controls, you know, I'm able to shift with, with my um, hands and it's been, it's been great. What did you use as a point of reference? I mean, it looks similar in some ways to the road hand cycle, but then you're talking about some of the tolerances to be able to fit wider tires. 
do you go back and forth and look at mountain bikes and see what how they're approaching the problem? How do you compile all of these references into something that is functional and allows you to climb 7,000 feet or whatever it was over 105 miles? Yeah, well, initially, and that was that was honestly the first, I mean, I wasn't as prepared physically as I should have been last year when I tried to do Rebecca's, uh, but that was one of my biggest mistakes was I tried to fit more of like 26 inch mountain bike tires and, and use a bike fit with 20 inch rear kind of thicker knobby tires. And what it did was it, the rolling resistance, I was going so slow that I was putting out the same amount of effort. My heart was in the same place, but I was just going slower. And I was essentially trying to use a, you know, a Jeep to do a NASCAR race. And um, so what I did was just went back to honestly, Google, like looking at tons of photos of um, broad kneelers because there's, you know, basically no gravel kneelers and the gravel kneelers that are out there are fairly, you know, they're more for like, if you were to sit and just go for a leisurely ride or whatever, they're not for riding right. aggressively and trying to hold 20 plus miles an hour. And, um, and by kneeler, what you mean is that you're actually, you're in a kneeling type of position where like, I couldn't do a kneeler because I'm a, a little bit higher level injury than you. I don't have the torso to be able to do that. So my legs are out in front of me and the kneeler is the alternative of being in a kneeling position. So you get all of your torso behind your pedal stroke as well. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. So there's recumbent, right. Where you're laying back and that's uh, spinal cord injury type stuff where you'd be laying back and, and it's very aerodynamic, very fast. But the, like you said, the problem is you can't get, you can't get your weight into the pedals. You can't, you can't use the core that like I have or you know, if someone had core to be able to sit in a kneeling position, you can't use that on a recumbent style to be able to get yourself up a hill you're climbing on a road sure you can climb up 10 percent grades in a, in a recumbent position you get on gravel where you don't have any weight over that front tire it's just going to slip you can't go anywhere and um there's a couple guys out there right now doing some recumbent the modifications to like carbon bikes that are uh, or uh, some of the top end recumbents um and they did really well um or like tie arrow, like there's, you know, top end, tie arrow, carbon bike, like they're, they're all starting to kind of adjust things to be able to use them on gravel uh, cycling, which is great. Um, but not really for a kneeler, like nobody's really investing anything into a kneeler, I think, because it is so custom and specific. Um, so, so yeah, so that's where I basically just had to look at a bunch of things, look at a bunch of positioning, look at, I mean, a lot of mine, because of my injury, is similar to like Alex's and Nardi, um, and and him clearly doing really well <laughs> in hand cycling. Was looking at his, you know, pictures of him and his bike and what his position was, and and going from there. Yeah, Zanardi, who was a Formula One racer who got T-boned coming out of out of the pits, right, and ended up losing both legs, came back and was a phenomenal hand cyclist, you know, multi-gold medalist in the Paralympics. What does the hand cycling on gravel do for you as a Nordic skier? Is this your off-season training? And are you planning on going to the next games? Will you be in Italy in uh, in 2026? 
I'm trying. That's the plan. I mean, I would love to, yeah, I would love to be in Italy um, for Nordic skiing. Nordic skiing is my primary sport at this time. And this season, this last off, off season was my first time utilizing gravel hand cycling for uh, the off season in a training kind of way. I mean, it initially started out as, Hey, I have a couple gravel hand cycling races. I think I'd like to do, and it would be fun. And then my coach and I got together and kind of realized like, Hey, we could really use this as a great tool leading, you know, throughout the summertime leading into the Nordic skiing, especially when I, I only have so much Nordic skiing I can do, right. There's only so many events they have. There's only, um, I I'm unable to live in Bozeman where I, I, you know, they ski quite a bit. And um, so being able to do something over the summer to keep, keep my fitness at such a high level so that when I do get back into the skiing season, I'm ready to go. And it worked out amazing. And I think it is due to all the climbing, the elevation, uh, the amount of effort that it takes for gravel hand cycling. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pushing, 15 miles an hour max in some of my, um, some of the, some of the gravel riding, because it's just the terrain. You can't go that fast compared to if I was on a road bike, it would be much easier. I, and, and so when I got back on skis in Canmore, you know, a month ago for the first world cup of this season, I literally felt like I never stopped skiing and it was amazing. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to keep utilizing gravel hand cycling and hopefully that'll <laughs> help me getting to Italy. Well, because you're talking about the fitness part, which you're helping with the gravel hand cycling, because it is so difficult. So you come into the season fit, but then the flip side of that is the technical. So the fitness is probably helping you with the technical side, because at least you're not dead trying to figure out how to have good technique. But Cross-country skiing is a lot like swimming that if you don't have good technique, you can be really, really tired really, really quickly. Is that working out better? Are you getting better on the technical side in addition to the fitness side? Definitely. And it's it's actually really funny that you said that Nordic seems like swimming because I had that epiphany at the games and because I was uh, thinking about Kendall Gretsch and how amazing she is. And like, she, she flew past me in one of the races. I don't remember. And I was just like, really? And then it was, you know, and I was like, I wonder if it has to do with swimming because when I, cause, cause then when I went home from um, one of the world cups or whatever, I got in the pool and I felt really strong and I was like, Oh, but I'd just been skiing for like a month. You know, I hadn't done any swimming and jumped in the pool and felt really strong. So I was like, okay, I do think there's some amazing crossover because it's all, just the, the pull, right? The way that you're pulling through the water. And I do feel like this, like up in Canmore, I was working a ton on technique. And I feel like now, oddly enough, now I have the, I have the right muscle and understanding, the right amount of muscle and understanding after this summer to be able to now focus on the technique to the point where it will help me. I don't know if I had enough muscle before, like if you know, I could have focused on technique, but I feel like it might've fallen through fairly quickly. Um, just because it is such a, I mean, and even now, like I'll hit a hill and my technique will go out the window because I'm just trying to get up the hill. Um, but it's something that I've really been working on because it's, it's very important and something that I didn't realize was as important as it, as it is. 
Well, there's so many different parts because you're utilizing different different body parts in order to do in order to 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 push yourself forward, right? I have a, a good friend who is a a really good hand cyclist, and he said for the longest time he wasn't able to get his he wasn't strong enough to get his heart rate up because he couldn't actually go far enough. He couldn't stress himself far enough, and which sounds like counterintuitive. But it is the way that things play out. What's next for you? What do you need to be able to do in order to reach uh, to reach to reach Italy in in twenty twenty six to get to Cortina? Yeah, for me, and I've, I've been working with my coach is is really getting stronger. There's really no other way to say it. I just need to get stronger. So, like doing the workout on the skier that I did yesterday, the fact that I'm doing it again tomorrow, I lifted today, um, you know, and then I'll be lifting the next day. And then I have a, you know, long ski on the weekend. And so it's, it's, it's really um, sort of volume, but also just strength. I mean, you look at, you look at the top guys, you look at Dan Knossen, you look at Aaron Pike, you look at Colin Cameron. Um, I don't even know half the Russian or, that country's Nordic skiers, but you look at all the dudes that are doing really well and their, their arms are huge, right? They're pipes. They're just absolutely, and their back just chiseled. So <laughs> that's kind of where we're at is if I want to get to that level, I, I need to develop the strength and then apply it correctly and efficiently um, in the races so that I can get to where where I need to be. We see that you're decorated for the holidays. Will you get Christmas off or is Christmas still a work day for you? <laughs> no, Christmas will definitely be off. Christmas Eve, I will, uh, or the day before, I will definitely have a workout. <laughs> you might be licking your wounds on Christmas day is what you're saying, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, can we do, we, we've not done this before. But I'd like to do like a five minute kind of rapid fire on questions. So so we'll do five questions in five minutes. Yeah, get get all set up, right. get all comfortable, ready to go. And 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 these actually are coming off of uh, we do a school program with with the foundation called Name Tags, and it's about getting beyond the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. I can't do this because of this or because of that. So, so this is going to be based on our four S's of resilience. And I'm interested to hear, and then I'll add a bonus one. So I'll get four, and then we'll add a bonus one. I think you'll be great, but let's see how it works. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, let's see how it works. How do you continue to be a survivor as opposed to a victim? Positive mental mindset and not putting myself in the role of feeling like the victim and, and asking myself what I can do, not what is holding me or what I, what I can't do. Perfect. Okay. That sounds great. How about turning something from being overwhelming to being a challenge? I treat it like it's a game. So if it's a race, I treat it like it's, it's more of a fun game. All right. I'm not going out there to race. I'm going out there to, to like, almost like I'm going to go do a scrimmage with my buddies. So taking the emotion out of it. Okay. Taking taking the stress out of it by treating it like it's something fun and exciting. How do you go from feeling like, and this could be a problem for you right now, being in Boise, feeling like an individual as opposed to being part of a team? 
just stay in contact with the individuals uh, on the team and and thanks to the electronics that we have access to today and um, zoom meetings and with with the team and texting and fun uh, you know messages with amongst teammates so you don't feel like you're alone this you are a problem solver you said you're a problem solver how can we go from being from having one strategy to solve the problem to having many strategies ooh i just try to change the perspective or look at try to look at it a different way and ask myself okay here's you know here's what i'm trying to accomplish what what would i do differently or how what else could i adjust to try to accomplish that goal as an endurance athlete and as a fabricator what do you tell yourself when you reach that point that you want to quit? How do you keep yourself going? I like to remind myself of why I'm doing the thing that I'm doing or what it is that I am enjoying about the sport. So if I'm having a hard time on my bike, I just pick my head up and look around and look at the sky and the trees or the, you know, the buildings and the scenery and kind of take it all in and be present in the moment and not focusing on the end result exactly so enjoying your surroundings the joy even though it's painful definitely well you did a great job you got in and out of all five of those i think you i think you survived well hopefully hopefully you feel like that that's that's all i got so i hope it's good <laughs> it is all good how much is how how important is it to have to have your kids as as part of your support group what is the you know what's the what's the message that you tell them obviously you've seen a lot in your life and what's the message that you pass on because they're pretty young right yeah they're yeah five and seven and basically i just i just try to i mean they've seen me like you said like start in sports and then do really well and then leave it and do a different sport that I'm not good at. And they, you know, when I get home, they, did you win? Or when I call them on FaceTime or whatever, did you get a gold medal? And I'm like, no, dude, I was barely in that race, you know? <laughs> like, and, and they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, good job. You did a good job. And I think that's, that's the biggest message that I try to pass on to them is that it's more about the process and the journey and, and testing yourself and seeing what you're capable of doing and pushing those limits and and not so much about the winning or the the what it is that you get for doing all that hard work. Yeah, I mean that's that's the hard part in so many ways, isn't it? The the talking about the process and how hard did you work to to achieve whatever you achieved? How much did you push yourself? Did you push yourself beyond what you'd done before? How receptive are they to those messages? And I mean, granted, five and seven, right? I mean, it's still they're still pretty young. But do you see them applying that? Are they because they're learning from you, right? I mean, you're a model for them. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, we, you know, when they get done with the different sports that I have them in, you know, one of the first things they come up and ask me is, "Did I do a good job?" And and you know, did did and the first thing I ask them is, "Well, did you have fun?" Because that's it's. I feel like that's always been something that I've really asked myself a lot is, am I having fun? And if I'm not having fun, why am I not having fun? Or what, what do I need to do to change that? Because if I'm not having fun, then that means I'm not going to invest myself fully into what it is I'm trying to do. My goals, 
probably won't get accomplished and I'll end up having to um, change my mindset or, or fight, right? I'm not trying to fight every workout. I'm not, I don't want to feel like, oh, I have to get back on the skier. Um, I want it to feel like a challenge. I want it to be hard, but I also want it to be fun. And I want to, at the end of that workout, say, oh, glad I got that one out of the way. And uh, so that's something that I feel like they're starting to apply, that they had fun, that they feel like they did a good job and, and that that's what I think really matters. Are you able to feel like after like the ERG workout that you're talking about that you're going to go on tomorrow, are you able to feel like I left it all out there? Like that's all I, cause you kind of have to build this block, right. To be able to like get up to the next block and you're trying to get better and better. Is that how you get better and better is just like leaving everything you have there and, and then hoping to recover for the next one. Yeah, I, I think so. I do think there's moments where, you know, it's, you have to look at the big picture and sometimes I'll just, I'll have to say, okay, maybe I should save a little bit in the tank for tomorrow, or maybe I need to dial it back just a little bit. Maybe I'm going a little too hard, but um, right now with, with my goals that I have and with the, the strength that I want to try to obtain before the end of the season, uh, I really am leaving it all out there. And, and like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely last year, it was hard because I still was trying to learn the technique. I was trying to develop the muscles to be able to do the sport. And now that I have those and that they're at least working most of the time, I can fatigue them and do it correctly and feel like, all right, that was a really good workout and I have nothing else. And now I'm going to go try to refuel and hopefully I'll be good for tomorrow. <laughs> And are you taking a bit of a long-term view right now where are results really important at the moment or is it is it just the the progress and putting in all that volume of work? I mean, it's a long-term view in, in the sense of the games are what, you know, four years out, three and a half years out. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that as I was able to go to the 2022 games, I mean, I was only a year into Nordic skiing. Yeah. Uh, I guess a full season, I was like a year and a half and uh, before starting that going to the games. So I feel like I was very fortunate to do that. I had an amazing experience and now I, I want to go and kind of <laughs> on my terms, I want to try to leave on my terms, right? Before it was just like, great, I'm here. I'm doing good. This feels great. I'm like middle of the pack. I'm happy with this. And next time when I go, I want to try to be top five or, you know, hopefully win something and, and leave or do well enough to where I feel like, okay, all that work I did over the last three and a half years really, really mattered. To go and make some noise. Does that fit with the with the message that you're that you're telling your kids too? I mean, it's what you're working for, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I, I think so because it's it's I'm having fun. I love skiing. I love what I'm doing. I'm doing it to the best of my ability and asking myself if I did a good job. And if I didn't, why didn't I do a good job? And is this something I want to you know? How can I adjust that to be able to do that? And and it's. I feel like so far it's just been nothing but enjoyable. Um, and the the progress that I'm making seems to be doing really well. That's awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the hard work. Thank you for your service as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Love being on here. Thanks. 
That's great. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. As we say, you know, tell your friends, please tell your friends. But we're also we're doing one, something a little bit different now. Please subscribe to the Name Tags Chat podcast. If you get a chance, please go to wherever you get your podcast and hit subscribe. And then you will never, you will always know when we have a new episode out. They will alert you to the new episodes. So it'll be easier for you to follow us and it'll be easy for, easier for us to know how many of you are following us. So thanks so much. And we look forward to seeing you next time.